right, Nate, we are back following Ohio State's 26-17 victory over Nebraska. It was very, very ho-hum. I think that's the only way you could really describe it. But at this point in the season, a win is a win, and we are one step closer to the playoff. Very, very ho-hum. And, and if I can glean any positive from it, I, I think would a 2018 version of Ohio State have won that football game or would they lay over and die just kind of – or roll over and die, I should say, just like they did back with Purdue and Iowa. That's kind of my thought process. Um, this had trap game written all over it, just coming off a big win, the meat of the schedule still to go. You're on the road. You've got a sleepy 11 a.m. kick. You're playing a Nebraska team who you're favored by 20 against, but has actually played most teams pretty well. And so I think, you know, we all would have loved to see Ohio State win by 45. But I think the fact that they snuck out of there with a win without maybe their best player in Garrett Wilson and without a, a sound performance, hey, I'll take it. A win is win. And you had a similar experience as I did the week before with the Penn State game. You had to kind of watch this recorded due to, um, like, you know, extraordinary circumstances. But I would say real time, I was very, very frustrated. Like, he got to the point when C.J. Stroud threw a second interception. I'm not going to say that I thought we were going to lose the game, but I was like, I need to mute the TV. And my dad wanted to listen to the commentary, so I had to watch in the other room because I was getting so fresh. I love Gus Johnson to death. We praise him so much on this podcast. But if he's like <laughs> announcing an upset, a potential upset, and your team is getting upset, it's like the last thing you want to hear. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So oh yeah. I was getting pretty frustrated by that, but. I, I don't know. I mean, we could start, we could definitely pick, there are things to pick apart here. Right. And I think Ohio state is definitely right now by our standard playing B B plus football, which is good enough to get these wins against teams like Nebraska and Penn state. But I think we could both say pretty confidently that they should have, pre- they should have played better against Penn state and Nebraska. Obviously a win is a win, but they're going to need to step it up uh, through the home stretch against these last three teams. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely are. And and I don't, you know, there's there's a variety of issues that it, it's so odd to me. I, I You look at the first three games of the season, you got Minnesota, you got Oregon. I think we gave up 31 to Minnesota, 35 or 38, something like that to Oregon, 20 to, to Tulsa. And, and everyone's screaming and crying. The defense is broken. And then we had, and the offense looked great. And it looks like the offense was going to carry us. And then we move and we, you know, we have four games. Rutgers, Maryland, Indiana, where both looking sick. And now it's almost like we flipped the other way. Well, an argument, and we've got an offense that looks discombobulated. It looks like they're not running at, at peak efficiency. And so, Mike, when you look at the offense in the last two weeks, what is issue number one to you? What is the problem? Is it the red zone issues? Is it the lack of the quarterback run? I've heard that a lot. Is it the, the interior offensive line having two tackles playing at the guard spots? 
what you know in some way it's all a mix of all of those but what would you put as the number one issue right now I think it's going to be really the lack of balance and I think that sort of points to not running the ball effectively but also not showing a certain commitment to the run and also balance you know Tr- Trayvon Henderson when we saw him be so effective at the beginning of the year and look he had 152 yards against Penn State but 68 of those 152 came on one long run. And sure, you could argue maybe he's the Barry Sanders type runner who's going to, you know, get three, four yards and eventually just break one. But I believe that truly CJ Stroud presses a little bit more if the run game is not working. And Ryan Day asked a lot of CJ Stroud this weekend. They threw the ball, what, 50 something times, 54 times against Nebraska. And there were a couple of scrambles in there too and a couple of sacks. So they basically like called six pass plays for every two running plays. And I just think that that balance hurts us. And I think in general, like big 10 weather as the year goes on, I've mentioned this a lot. You you mm. start to be more reliant on the run game. It's something urban Meyer always did, you know, feeding Zeke and, and JK Dobbins towards the end of the year. And I feel like you can't always expect the passing game to be there because the Midwestern weather is just not going to be there. You know, like what are you going to do if we go up to the big house and it's windy and it's 35 degrees. You have to have a commitment to running the football. So personally, I think that they should run the ball more, and I think they should also have more balance with Master Teague and Mayan Williams and not just give Travion Henderson 90% of the carries because I think he's a much more effective back when he's getting 60% of the carries. Yeah, I'm with you. I I think it does. I I actually think that that a big storyline that's being overblown is this idea that that uh, CJ Stroud needs to run the ball more or needs to hold on to the ball more. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but I think that's pretty overblown. I mean, this isn't Urban Meyer's offense. This isn't the offense where the quarterback is, we're so dependent on him running. And I know people say, hey, well, the, the offense needs another weapon inside the 20 yard line to punch it in. But NFL offenses do this every Sunday. You know, they, Tom Brady is not mobile and the Bucks figure out ways to score. And so I, I don't think I really want to hear that we need C.J. Stroud to be more of a running threat. I don't think that's the issue. My, in, in my opinion, as I watch this team, I think the issue comes down to the offensive line, specifically that, that we're playing these true tackles, Paris Johnson and Thayer Mumford at guard. I think they've done serviceable, but the, the issue is, Mike, they're 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, 315 pounds. Guards are meant to be a little bit more compact, you know, 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, I think it makes it hard. Your, your, ends are, your defensive ends are going to be taller than your defensive tackles. And so I think that's making it difficult for these guys to get leverage in, on the interior of the defensive line. I think that's creating all sorts of problems and then on top of that, you know, we're, we're mixing up this offensive line too much where Matthew Jones comes in and Nicholas petit Frere is playing awesome at left tackle, but now suddenly we're moving him back and forth and he's struggling like crazy. But what, do you, what do you make of that? Am, am I making too big of a deal of this? I, I think a lot of it comes down to the offensive line. That's interesting. And I think you might have answered a question that I had earlier in the week and I texted you this. Uh, after you're watching the game, I said, I don't know why we're running all of these like zone stretch runs to the outside. Very Mike Shanahan, Denver Broncos esque. you know, not a lot of power running where you, we didn't have much like guard pulling and just run up the gut. 
and, and, you know, blow up the A or the B gap. But what you're saying, that might be the reason for that. Maybe these guys aren't, aren't quick enough to pull effectively and, you know, get Travion Henderson to the second level in the interior. And he's bouncing everything out to the outside. And I think when you play a team with really good linebackers, and I think I forgot the guy's name off the top of my head. I'll probably be able to find it in the box. Doman. Yeah, I had him 15 tackles. Uh, yeah, Doman was a pretty good linebacker. Uh, this didn't obviously happen against Indiana because they just weren't very effective, but Mike and McFadden fit that profile. And Penn State definitely has great linebackers that can crash down. And I feel like if, uh, you know, they always say that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And I think if we try yep. to do all this, like, circuitous running to the outside and try to get Travion to, to, to the second level that way, if they have good linebackers that can shed blocks, they'll crash down and they'll just disrupt him and, and limit him to two or three yards. And I think I think we've seen a lot of that against Nebraska, and we saw quite a bit against against Penn State as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm absolutely with you. And and so I don't, you know, I don't know what the solution is. I know that this coaching staff wants to, the, you know, they preach this over and over. We want to have the best five offensive linemen on the field at any given time. And, and trust me, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think that's super wise, but I just, I, I don't know if these tackles can play guard. Uh, Paris Johnson is, he's, he likely going to be a first round pick, but he, his body is built to play tackle. You know, whose body is built to play guard, Billy price, Billy. Those are two different looking guys. And so I just, I wonder if we're setting our guys up to fail a little bit by putting them in these situations there. Mumford, you know, if we're being honest, he struggled this year. He hasn't, he hasn't looked great. He's looked a little uncomfortable at that guard spot. And so I, I just have to ask myself, are we overthinking this too much? You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I want to comment on one other thing that you said about people say that C.J. Stroud needs to run the ball more. I think that the substitute they really have for that is RPOs. And the RPOs that Ohio State runs is incredibly effective because the linebackers have to decide between, okay, am I going to commit to Travion Henderson or am I going to commit to us, you know, a, a slant over the middle to Jackson Smith and Jigba, you know? So that's, that's the way to keep them honest. You don't necessarily need CJ Stroud to run the read option like, like JT Barrett would. So I, I agree. Right. With you, though. I don't, I don't think that's really an issue. And I guess you could argue that, okay, well, how many of CJ Stroud's passes were short passes and basically extensions of the run game? Sure. It's, it's not like he's taking a five-step drop on, on 60 passing attempts. Um, they certainly did use the short passing game quite a bit to complement that. And uh, But I guess the one thing in this game that I was kind of concerned about is like the deep passing was sort of not there. And is that something that when Garrett Wilson comes back, maybe that corrects itself pretty instantly? Or is because is, Jackson Smith and Jigba, as great as he is, he is so much more effective running the intermediate routes than running like a seam pattern or a fly on the outside. And while Chris Olave does a great job of, you know, taking the top off of the defense, if the safety only has one receiver to worry about over the top and, and not the other one in Garrett Wilson, you know, is that why it didn't work out? I don't know. You know, I, I'm not watching the all 22 here, but that's what I'm certainly speculating right now. I think that's something that people aren't talking about enough. The The truth of the matter with Garrett Wilson being out is that I think, I think we could both agree that Garrett Wilson's been our best player this year. You know, I know this team is loaded down with talent. There have been flashes from all sorts of guys. We had flashes from Travion Henderson. We had flashes from Chris Olave. We had 
Ned flashes, you know, just this past weekend from Jackson Smith and Jigba and others. But I think the best player on this team this year has been Garrett Wilson. And I know a receiver's ability to influence a game is limited, but what would Alabama have been last year without Devontae Smith? I think they would have been affected. Garrett Wilson's not quite Devontae Smith, but you get the idea. And so I I really do think that's a bigger storyline, not having him, than we realize. Yeah, and people always say it's like, oh, next man up, which is certainly true. Like if there's any positional group that Ohio State has more depth than anyone in the country, it would be receiver. But what people don't take into account is that not all receivers are created differently. And if a guy who is a vertical threat gets removed, I, I saw this this past weekend with the with the Las Vegas Raiders, about to say the Oakland Raiders. You know, Henry Ruggs was out of the lineup and their offense was basically inept because they didn't have that vertical threat to take the top off the defense. And, and Derek Carr struggled and threw a couple picks. And I, I think you could argue that a similar thing happened against Nebraska. Now, Garrett Wilson is cleared uh, to play against Purdue. By all accounts, he will be playing. So we will have the triple threat of receivers back. And, uh, you know, Purdue's defense is actually ranked better than their offense, believe it or not. They're ranked 40th in offense and 12th in defense this year. Uh, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see how we match up, and I I think you could certainly argue that Purdue is going to have the best defense that will uh, that will have played so far to this point this year. Mike, it's absolutely crazy because I mean the the listeners know I have my grandfather's a Purdue al- alumni, my late grandfather, and so I grew up going to Purdue Boilermakers games all through the late '90s into the you know to about 2010. And in all those years, Purdue was never, ever known to be a defensive stalwart. Um, and even when Jeff Brom came in, you know, the they had this high-powered offense with David Blau and Rondale Moore and, and, and others, but the defense is the issue. And now it seems like that's been corrected. You know, they're led by George Karloftis, probably going to be a first-round pick, five-star defensive end, who, you know, they just happened to get lucky, he had a had a five-star defensive end that grew up in West Lafayette. So he's at the hometown school playing for Purdue, and the whole defense kind of, you know, flows through him. But this is a really, really good unit. They kind of shut down Michigan State a week ago, (coughs) you know, and, and their offense seems to be hitting its stride as well. Yeah, and I guess uh, we an uh, easy transition now talking about that game. I, I I mentioned this before on the last podcast that I feel like if a offense is going to expose Ohio State's defense, like Ohio State's defense, not world beaters by any means, but they're respectable, and I think that they have to effectively do multiple things well. And and I think Penn State to a degree, they had 24 points and the reason why they didn't crack 30 or 40 points against Ohio State is cuz they only threw the ball well. Sean Clifford had 361 yards, but their running game, 29 rushes for 33 yards. But if you think about a team that did play well against Ohio State's defense this year, Oregon, they threw the ball well. Anthony Brown had 236 yards through the air and they ran the ball well. 38 carries for 269 yards. And even you can even point to Minnesota uh, before Ibrahim uh, yeah. you know, tore his Achilles. They had 200 yards through the air, 200 yards through the ground. So that's the question. Yeah. You, you've watched a lot of Purdue this year. Do you think Purdue has the two-dimensional offense that could take care of Ohio State's defense, or do you think they're just too one-dimensional? Not even a little bit. I, their running game has been completely abysmal all year. 
they've got Xander Horvath back there and King Daru and and uh, I think they're both averaging you know at or around like three maybe three yards per carry um, and so I, those guys are not it I, I think that Ohio State's defense truthfully matches up okay now now listen I don't, I don't want to be misheard here they're gonna throw the ball on Ohio State David Bell is gonna he's gonna play well they have some other good players Kendall Wright and and such who are they're gonna be able to move the football some but I think Ohio State will shut down the run and I think you know what we're seeing People don't realize this. Ohio State now leads the nation in sacks. And I know they had a nine-sack performance against Akron, but they've strung together two straight weeks against Penn State, Nebraska, decent power five football teams where they've had four and five sacks. I think this defensive line starting to round into form and a team that's going to pass the ball a lot. Aiden O'Connell is far less mobile than Adrian Martinez. I think it sets up okay for Ohio State. I'm I'm actually I'm I'm impressed with this with this defense really. It's crazy to think that they gave up I think maybe 200 yards rushing in each of their first two games and they're they've done so well since then that they've climbed up to the top 15 in in rush defense. Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable if you think about it. Like after the first two games, I think we would say un you know, unquestionably our offense was an A by our standards and our defense is like a D. And now we're kind of at the point where we're like B on offense by our standards and B on defense. You know, I think there's there's room to grow on offense and defense, but I think being a more complete team and not having that one major hole is so important. And to build off of what you said, Nate, about the sacks, the important thing is that these are not sacks that are coming from scheme. You know, you could have a defensive coordinator who, sure, they're getting sacks when they blitz seven people, but then that could cause a coverage breakdown in the back end. No, we're getting sacks from our defensive line. And uh, out of our 33 sacks that we've had this season, quick math, only five have been from players not on the defensive line. So 28 out of the 33 sacks have been from either D tackles or D ends, which is, I think is enormous because if you're getting pressure from your front four, that just like allows you to have so much flexibility on the back end and be able to effectively cover the other team. And David Bell's a monster, but because of that pressure we're getting by our front four, we could legitimately, you know, commit three guys to covering him and still, uh, and, and still be yeah. one-on-one everyone else on the field. Has have two, can you remember two, like a pair of teammates who have improved or, or maybe woken up as much as Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith have. I mean, the last two weeks, those two have been unbelievable. Tyreek Smith. I'm like, I don't even know who this is. I, I've never seen this. Maybe I saw this rendition of him one time in the Clemson game a year ago, but those two are playing, I mean, like the best players on the team, like they should be like five-star football players that they are getting constant pressure. They're collapsing the pocket over and over and over the defensive tackles. I've been so impressed with like Antoine Jackson and, and uh, Hamilton up there and Jerron Cage and Pascal Garrett, they're, they're really coming on. And it, it makes me excited. We kind of look at the rest of the, the season here, and none of these quarterbacks are nearly as mobile as a Sean Clifford or an Adrian Martinez. Uh, it, it makes me hopeful for what this D-line could do. 
Yeah, and don't forget the four defensive touchdowns too. On on well, I guess one on a or uh, four defensive touch, uh, five defensive touch, six defensive touchdowns. Haskell Garrett on page both returned fumbles for touchdowns, and then Cameron Martinez, Ronnie Hickman, Denzel Burke, and Craig Young returned interceptions for touchdowns. So this defense is almost averaging a defensive touchdown per game, which is pretty unbelievable. And uh, Nate, but if you were to say, so I think we agree that offensively, maybe we need a little bit more balance uh, that maybe could allow us to go from a B back to an A, but defensively, what is the thing that is going to make this defense turn from a pretty good defense to a great or elite defense? Mm, That is a, that's a really, really good question. I think it's, I, I don't know if it's so much as something that the players can change as much as I think it's something that the coaches need to do. I think if this defense is going to reach its full potential, the linebacker rotations can still happen in some part, but I think every rotation that you have out there has to have steel chambers in it. Um, I mean, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous. I don't know how a kid who played – a running back for the last two seasons could come in and have the kind of impact that he's having, but it's, it's very, very real. Um, You know, he sat out the first half of the game this past week. And I don't know if you noticed it, Mike, but as soon as he was in the game, he was busting up. I mean, he, he, he kind of blew up a screen and got a pass interference call, but I mean, his awareness, his ability to run to the football and pursue the football, he, he has been incredible. And so I think when you get a guy like him and a guy like Ronnie Hickman out there together, I think that makes this defense very quick and very and able to cover a lot of ground. And so I think I think that's issue number one. And I, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. We've we've talked and, and texted about this a little bit. I think issue number two, Ohio State has to figure out what are they doing at this cover safety role. You know, it's the role that we saw Lathan Ransom play a lot at the end of last season. It's the role that we saw Marcus Williamson play all last season. We've seen Cam Martinez look pretty good in it this year. And now we've got Marcus Williamson playing it again. We've got Lathan Ransom playing it again. But it seems like that's kind of the position that's consistently, you know, who, who's the one that you see chasing down the big play? It's that it's number 12 or number five. And so I I feel like we have to figure out that nickel cover safety position if we're going to be successful. Right. And that was a if if not for the two big plays that Nebraska had, the Samore Torre, uh, two long catches, one which resulted in the touchdown, the other one tackled at the one, which ended up being a touchdown in the next play. Uh, This this defensive performance looks a whole lot better. And I don't know what the solution is because – I, our sample size is so limited in each player. You know, I I thought Cam Martinez is doing a great job back there, but you know, we've seen the personnel change. We've seen the, the uh, scheme change, you know, after the first few games of the season, we've just seen so many shuffling parts. I'm definitely a little bit nervous that we haven't figured it out entirely going into this last stretch, but perhaps they're thinking Ryan day would never admit this publicly, but maybe he's thinking like, okay, am I like, we could still like kind of test our, what we have a little bit because I don't think that, you know, Cade McNamara or Peyton, you know, uh, um, the Peyton Thorne, Peyton Thorne. Yeah. Or, uh, or Aiden O'Connell. I don't know if they're going to be like torching us to the point where they're probably going to cost us a win. 
I don't think that, you know, Graham Mertz certainly wouldn't in the Big Ten Championship, but you better have something figured out if you go up against a Bryce Young or a Kate Williams in the playoff. Absolutely. Yeah, and maybe you're right. I, it's just so confusing to me because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like Cam Martinez, he played really well against Tulsa, and I, I think even had a pick six in that game maybe. Yeah. And then he played really well the next week against Rutgers, was maybe even like the player of the game defensively. And then since then, we've only seen Marcus Williamson. And so I don't know if, if there's some sort of scheme thing. I don't know if, you know, maybe Cameron Martinez is in the doghouse. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's extremely confusing to me. I, I truly have no idea what's going on. Well, on the bright side, teams watching film of this defense, they're going to have no idea what's going on either. They're going to have to prepare for True. 50 different formations at any given point. True. Um, True. So it's a little bit of a shell game in that regard. Uh, Nate, do you think we could transition more to the any other points you want to mention about the Purdue game? I think we could both kind of – actually, let me ask you this. This is kind of a good way to, to cap off the conversation. What is your nervous – meter like one to ten ten you're kind of like full panic going into this game as a one you're like you know it's like Rutgers at home that's like my analogy what what would you say how nervous are you going into this Mm. game so I've been deeply immersed in you know Ohio State and Purdue my entire life and so I I think truthfully speaking I think Ohio State is getting Purdue at just the right time Traditionally, Purdue will have this this big game where they, you know, they play really well and they beat a team like Michigan State, a top three team at home, and then they go on the road. And as soon as the lights are kind of on them, I feel like they kind of they fold. I mean, it's happened already this year. They beat Iowa, and I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong. They lost the next week. Yep. And so for that that reason, I, I that mixed with the fact that. I think this team, Purdue, you know, being ranked, I don't know if, if everyone saw last night, but being ranked 19th, I don't think they're going to slip by Ohio State's attention. Um, I know Ohio State has a murderer's row gauntlet rest of the season here that includes, you know, if, if they're to make it to a national championship, it means the remaining six games they play will all be top 20 teams, which is pretty unbelievable. Um and so, but so for that reason, I don't think Ohio State's going to be lo- overlooking them. I think if they're going on the road to West Lafayette, it may be a different story. But I, so I'll put my confidence meter truthfully at about seven that the Buckeyes will win. I don't know if it'll be pretty, but I'm going to put it at seven that they win. Yeah, I, I agree with you too. Um, and I think if that they did, if they didn't beat Michigan State last week, then I think from a mental point of view, there's sort of two things going against us. One would be, oh, Purdue's not that good. They have four losses. They just got killed by Michigan State. And then, if anything, they would be looking ahead to the Michigan State game because Michigan State would still be unbeaten. Right. It would be three, and then they would think, okay, you know, that's the game that really matters, and then they might take Purdue for granted. But I think Purdue having those two upsets, they're impossible to look past. Also, Ohio, nobody on this roster, I believe, was on the was playing any significant playing time when Ohio State lost to Purdue a few years ago. But 
Um, nevertheless, you know, that's, that game is still ingrained in their memories. And when Purdue has caught the Buckeyes, I believe the last four times that Purdue has beaten Ohio state, it has been in West Lafayette. They have not beaten us in Columbus. So I think that sort of helps matters too. However, the one thing going against Ohio state is that I will be attending this game for the first time since 2015. I'm I'm making my my trip up from the return. The return, yeah. The last I'm exercising the demons because the last time I was in the horseshoe, we lost to Michigan State, and um, I was positioned. Tell right the, li- tell the listeners a little bit about that about that afternoon for you. Oh, worst, worst, probably the worst day of my life. You know, not including any family deaths or, or things of that matter. But <laughs> the, uh, basically, the I because I was a super senior at this point, I had like front row seats, like right next to the Michigan State tunnel. Obviously, it was just a bad game, just a bad football game in general. 40 degrees, pouring, uh, and Michigan State wins on a last-second kick. And I'm just kind of like standing there lifeless. And the guy next to and me. That's your like, last game ever, right? That's my last game that's ever. Yeah, and I, I knew that going into it. And the guy next to me, I won't name his name. Um, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And also <laughs> one of our friends, like Connor Cook was kind of doing this like airplane motion, like like going back to the locker room. And uh, and then <laughs> and then, uh, you know, our, our friend cur- basically like cursed him off. And then, and then Connor Cook proceeded to flip us off. And I'm like, man, that is not what I needed right now. (laughs) And then I had to walk. That's right. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry. I don't, I don't mean to interrupt this. No, you're good. And then I walked two miles home and then I I think I, I don't remember the game that I turned on, but I'm pretty sure Alabama, I turned on thinking Alabama, Hey, maybe they'll get upset too. And I think Alabama won by like four touchdowns. Um, it was just bad. Yeah, it was just miserable. So I'm coming back and I'm trying to exercise those demons and hopefully we can get a win, but I haven't had the best of luck at home games. But, hey, we'll what a, see what happens. What a dreadful day for you, man. I, and and I remember that game. I was down in Florida. We kind of switched places. I'm down in grad school down there. And I can remember watching that game, and, and it was so frustrating. And then it, it feels like, you know, Connor Cook didn't even play. And it feels like Ohio State didn't lose that game because of Michigan State's talent. It felt like they lost that game because they refused to just give the football to Zeke. I feel like there's some storyline came out that he was like sick and under the weather, but he he was very upset that he didn't get more touches. I think JT Barrett ended the game with like 30 carries for, you know, 88 yards or something ridiculous. And, um, man, that that is a team that should have won back-to-back national titles. Yeah, and they proceeded to – and what's interesting, and I guess we can kind of talk about the playoff committee now, is that that was a pretty good loss because Michigan State only had one loss at that time, but the committee kind of kicked us out because we had been playing mediocre football most of the most of the year. Most of the year. Uh, yeah, they judged us based on our resume. They didn't judge us based on our potential, and that team went on to blow out Michigan in the big house and then destroyed Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl as well. Um, and we're not seeing the same thing happen to Alabama. The rankings came out unsurprisingly, Alabama was ranked second behind Georgia, Oregon and Ohio state moved up. And for the record, Nate, I'm totally fine putting Oregon ahead of Ohio state. I I don't think at this point you could really say that the resumes are, are too different to not value head to head, but where I had an issue, if you're going to put Oregon ahead of Ohio state, why is Michigan ahead of Michigan state? Yeah, I, I looked more. I looked more into this last night, and I thought, you know, certainly there's got to be some metric, some reason 
that the committee put Michigan uh, ahead of Michigan State. Because I think they, you know, they gave the typical, like, stupid answer, like, well, when we look at these two football teams, it looks like Michigan's the better football team, whatever. And I went and looked at even the advanced metrics. I'm not a huge advanced metrics guy. But when I look at those, Michigan State has a better strength of record. They have a better strength of schedule. I think they might be higher in the FPI. And yet, and, and they have the head-to-head win. And so it's like if, if teams – I mean, their strength of schedule, strength of records are very similar. And, and so it feels like the most logical thing you would do at that point is to measure head-to-head and say, hey, have these teams – do they have a common opponent? Oh, they do. They've played each other. And Michigan State's one. I, I, it's it's mind boggling to me. I don't, I don't know if they're trying to, you know. It, it's probably truthfully one of those things where it's like, well, having Michigan in the playoff would be far sexier than having Michigan State in there again after Bama beat them fifty to nothing in twenty fifteen. Um, I don't know what what. I'll, I'll let you rant a little bit. I know you're upset about this too. So your thoughts on Michigan State and Michigan? I'm convinced that it's a conspiracy. And, and yeah, to go off of what you said, Nate, strength of schedule is essentially equal. Michigan 45, Michigan State 44. Strength of record, which is sort of the year after year, has been the most predictive metric of who makes the final four when it's all said and done. Michigan is eight. Michigan State is seven. Uh, FPI, Michigan does have a little bit of an advantage, and that just basically says how good you are. But, hey, if the teams play, you got to, you know, uh, value it, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know? And I, I think that cause they could have put Michigan state ahead of Michigan and that's sort of the logical thing to do. And it doesn't matter because both teams are going to play Ohio state. So if one of the two teams beats Ohio state, they're going to be ahead of the other regardless, cause the other one's going to have two losses. So their ranking right now is absolutely irrelevant. So why would the only logical reason of why you'd put Michigan ahead of Michigan state is to get people talking, get people to watch the show next week. And what bothers me is that Reese Davis, who I, I love Reese Davis, and I know he has his hands tied because I'm sure ESPN uh, producers are telling him, you know, don't grill the committee chairman too much. But Reese Davis is uh-huh. asking him, you know, oh, why is Michigan ahead of Michigan State? And he's like, oh, well, you know, uh, our guys in the room felt like Michigan was the better team. And um, yeah, it could change every week. And Reese Davis is like, great answer. All right. That's all we got time for. See us next week. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, exactly true. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He didn't even bring up the head-to-head argument. He's like, didn't you guys value that Michigan? He could he could have at least said like, hey, they're pretty comparable teams. Why isn't why why are you valuing head-to-head with Oregon and Ohio State, but not with Michigan, Michigan State? He could have said that. He didn't even say that. And David Pollock was the only. Even Kirk Herbstreit was arguing for Michigan to be ahead, which I was very surprised by. Normally, he's so logical. Yeah, that's that's actually surprising for me to hear. I mean, it's the same case with. Auburn and Penn State. Explain that one to me. Auburn is sitting, you know, top 20. I think they're 16th or 18th or something. They're six and three. Penn State, six and three. They beat Auburn head to head. And hey, Penn State's losses, I know the Illinois one. That's fluky. Doesn't make much sense. Sure. Think whatever you want about that. But their other two losses are against Iowa, a top 20 team after their quarterback got hurt, which the committee is supposed to take into account injuries and against Ohio State on the road. I mean, goodness gracious, how is how is Penn State not a ranked football team? Yeah, and I think Auburn should be ranked. Don't get me wrong. Like they're lost. Right. I agree. But 
I don't think that they should be appreciably higher than, than Penn state. And for people to say that like, Oh, like the argument that, Oh, well, you know, X, Y, and Z had to happen because some people were saying like, okay, well, Michigan, you know, a few calls didn't go their way. And like, they had a couple turnovers and this and that. So yeah, that's, that's why you play the game. Like no underdog is going to be a favorite if not for X, Y, and Z, there is always X, Y, and Z, factors that cause an upset like oh if not for kenneth walker you know going crazy it's like yeah well you have to give them the the benefit of the doubt for doing that it's it it totally defeats the purpose of playing the games it's it's very frustrating and it's like you know we we can go on and on about the sec bias I, i think the big 10 certainly gets a certain amount of of credit as well i don't really get why oklahoma is so far down like i don't know i I think the committee's kind of kind of a little wacky i have heard their their strength of of record is or maybe their strength of schedule is like preposterous i I don't know if that's true like maybe in the hundreds for oklahoma maybe that's why if you compare it to cincinnati though if if, who are the Mm. teams that matter right now it's just georgia oklahoma and cincinnati don't forget utsa right and uh in the uh (laughs) runners (laughs) the the road runners that's right okay so okay I'll, I'll even bring them in the conversation their strength of schedule is 125 Cincinnati's strength of schedule is 99 Oklahoma's strength of schedule is 83 uh, so Oklahoma okay. just based on that the fact that they're undefeated against that they probably should be ahead of Cincinnati I, both teams uh, have yeah in how they look I, I don't know um, I have and, and people a lot of people have said you know Oklahoma as long as they went out and they beat Baylor, and they beat Iowa State and Oklahoma State, they're going to be able to get in. I don't know. Because hypothetically, let's say they beat Baylor. Okay, well, Baylor now has – that's either three or four losses. Depend- and then they have to play two more games. They just lost a, a bad TCU team who doesn't have a head coach. You're looking at Iowa State, who's six and three, who could, you know, could conceivably still lose some ball games. And then, okay, yeah, well, they play Oklahoma State and Bedlam, and then they – play them again in the big T- big 12 championship. Well, at that point, Oklahoma state has three losses. Where, where's the committee going to rank uh, a three loss Oklahoma state team that hasn't been impressive all season. I can guarantee it's going to be below Auburn. I can guarantee it's going to be below four loss Arkansas. I, I don't know if, I don't know if Oklahoma, I don't know if they control their own destiny. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, I think they might be in trouble if Alabama, Ohio State, and Oregon went out because you're, you, you're putting Oklahoma so far behind those teams now, right? And what are their wins that they're going to pick up? They would pick up a Baylor win Oklahoma, and two Oklahoma State wins. Is that like better than Ohio State picking up Michigan State, Michigan, and Wisconsin? Probably not. And Purdue. And, and Purdue and Alabama would pick up the obviously if Alabama beats Georgia. I believe they're actually going to be pencil then for the next five playoffs. I think that's how that. Works. <laughs> yeah, that is. I, I have heard that's how that works. So I, you're right. I, I, I think that's kind of true. It's interesting. I'm on this ESPN playoff predictor. I don't think the stats are that right, but uh, Nate, I'm going to give you the percent chance that a team has to make the playoff, like in most. Um, and you have to guess what team that is. Okay. Fun, fun little exercise. I love it. Starting from it. the most likely. So what team has a 96% chance of making it? That's got to be Georgia. Yeah. Uh, number two, 70%. Who do you think it is? Um, 
I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Oregon. No, it's actually Alabama. Really? I think that their thought here is that there's probably a 50% chance that Alabama wins against Georgia. Uh, but then you also have to factor in the Iron Bowl too. Right? I don't. I don't know. I, I think that's way too high. I think Alabama. I, I, probably more like yeah. Um, I personally I, think that there's virtually no chance that I, I think Georgia. That's like the game for them. Like they have lost to Alabama so many times in so many close ball games. I I really think that could be ugly. Um, but for the for the sake of good. Good podcasting here, Mike. I, I want to throw out a scenario to you. Let's say Alabama loses in the Iron Bowl to Auburn, but there's chaos in the SEC, and somehow Alabama still makes the SEC championship. Alabama beats Georgia. They have the best win in the in the nation. They're a two-loss SEC champion. Are you putting, or is the committee putting Alabama in? So, in and the- we'll say we'll say Ohio State wins out, Cincinnati wins out, Oklahoma and Oregon win out. Uh, yes, they're in. Definitely. That just, I think there's no, that's hard. That's hard to stomach. Well, and I actually, so in this ESPN playoff predictor thing, it's actually a really cool tool. You can click on each team and then basically predict their path and then say like, you know, what team they win and lose to. And then they tell you what percent chance they have. So doing that for Alabama, it says they have an 88% chance to make the playoff. If they do, Jeez. if they lose to, so Auburn, if they beat Georgia, they could lose their next four games and beat Georgia in their end. <laughs> yeah, well, going to this week's games, that's why like Texas A and M winning out is massive. Like it is so important to keep Alabama out of the playoff because if Texas A and M wins the rest of their games, and this week I they're actually slight, they're slight favorites to to Ole Miss, but. Um, you know, if they lose to Ole Miss or if they lose to LSU, which is, I believe, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, then Alabama, like, can't lose the Iron Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Like, if Alabama, mm, if yeah. Alabama picks up its – the only way Alabama is getting in with two losses is if they're an SEC champion, right? So, I think right. – if Al, even if Alabama, you know, beats Auburn and then loses to Georgia and they're a two-loss non-champion, I still don't think that they're going to get in not having won their conference, with, especially if you have, like, undefeated teams like Cincinnati and um, and uh, Oklahoma behind them as well. So, I so we, we, we got to root hard for the Aggies this week. No kidding. No kidding. Uh, what is that, the 12th man? We're rooting for the 12th man, baby. Yeah, let's go. Money Manziel. Uh, <laughs> money that's right that's right zach calzada and then the other the other games this week i'm just trying to look like alabama's 52 point favorites over new mexico state they I texted you wow, that's, that's an, a tough one it's a tough one yeah it's it, it's also annoying that people say oh the sec is so great people don't take into account the sec has eight conference games and you know so they end up alabama basically gets away with playing a out of conference game that usually is against the team that ends up not being very good. It's always like USC, Miami, or Miami, Louisville, uh, and then they play Mercer, Southern Miss, and New Mexico State. Yeah, so that's uh. I mean, is is New Mexico State even Division One? I'm like not even kidding. I don't, I, I don't even know what conference they would be in. The WAC or something. I don't know. They're they're one and eight this year. <laughs> Uh, wow. so apparently not yet. Juggernaut Mich- schedule. Hey, who do you want to win? Michigan, Penn State. This is an interesting one because some people will say we need Michigan to get into the top five to give Ohio State the chance for the signature win at the end of the year. 
But the devil's advocate argument there is if Penn State wins that game, then we can clinch the Big Ten East with a win over Michigan State next week. Yeah, I'm I'm all in on on Penn State winning that game. That's that's who I'm rooting for. That's who I'm cheering for. And I, I think I actually, in my heart of hearts, I think Penn State's going to win that game. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I think originally Penn State was is I think they still are maybe favored to win that game. And I would have put that as an omen uh, against them. That that would be a rallying cry for Michigan. But I think Penn State getting disrespected by the committee and being unranked at six and three, I think that's going to be a team that comes out and plays inspired and angry football. Um, and I, I think they're going to win that football game. I think that's it's going to kind of be Sean Clifford's signature win for the Nittany Lions. What do you think about that? I agree. The line is even right now, and I, if, if I'm a betting man, which I am, I'll probably take Penn State in that one. And I do think they're going to win. I agree. I think that their defense is just something that Michigan hasn't seen all, all year long. Michigan's the way that Michigan's MO has been just from tracking this, these games all season. It's like, Oh, 10 to seven at halftime, Michigan has a slight lead and then they break away in the second half. I just think you can't do that to Penn state. I think Penn state's defense, if you let them stay in the game as long as possible, Penn State's defense just doesn't allow you to snap your fingers and get two quick touchdowns. And and that's sometimes what Michigan does to, to break away. And going back to the whole balance thing, does this team have balance? Michigan's balance is starting to erode. Their running game wasn't as effective against Michigan State as it had been earlier in the year. So I think that they're going to have a tough time running the ball against Penn State. And then I think then you're going to have to rely on Cade McNamara on the road. And I like Penn State's defense to make some plays and win that game as well. And I agree. I think winning – I think having Penn State win and then us being able to clinch the Big Ten East with a win over Michigan State the following week is huge because losing to Michigan is going to happen eventually. And if it does happen, I would like the consolation prize to be that we could still win the Big Ten. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. Let, let me ask you this. I know the rankings would say otherwise, but when you look at the Big Ten and you really boil it down, if, if we're to say Ohio State is the best team, who knows? Maybe they're not. If But if we're to say that, who would you say is the second best team in the Big Ten East? Uh, I would I would say Penn State. I really do. Um, I think yeah. that they had a tough, tough break against Iowa with Clifford being hurt. I think that the way they kind of have responded, they blew out Maryland and they played really hard against Ohio State. And obviously losing to Illinois was tough, but there was a lot going on that week with the James Franklin distractions. So I think that – if all teams are playing to their optimal potential, I, I think the Nittany Lions is the second best team in the Big Ten East, followed by Michigan, I, I think, Michigan State's four. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think even like Michigan, the the only real t- test, I guess Nebraska is not a terrible team. The only real test they've had is against this Michigan State team, and and it looked like McNamara kind of rose to the occasion, but I'm I'm not so convinced that you or I couldn't throw for 350 against Michigan State's passing defense. And so I, I think you're right. I don't think Cade McNamara has seen anything like he's going to see this week against uh, Penn State in that defense. It's going to be interesting to see. I, I, my, my gut says that game at, you know, the end of the third quarter is going to be something like 
like six to three or nine to three. Yeah, I can see that. It's going to be really, really, uh, I would definitely take the under in that one. Oklahoma at Baylor. The 12 o'clock slate is loaded. I don't know. It is. It is ignorant. It's kind of dumb, honestly, of ABC. How is Michigan, Penn State, and Purdue, Ohio State both on AB? Oh, oh, no, didn't realize Purdue, Ohio State's on at 3.30. I should probably know that as someone who's going to the game. But, um, <laughs> but uh, Oklahoma, Baylor, is they, I, Fox picked that up as the 12 p.m. game, the um, weekly Gus Johnson, Joel Clack game. This would be Where is that at? It's in Waco. Uh, Oklahoma's in uh, Waco. Yeah, Oklahoma's a touchdown favorite. If Oklahoma loses here – you can basically, for all intents and purposes, eliminate the Big 12 from the playoff picture. I think we could breathe a little easier. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I, I actually think there's a, a realistic chance that happens. I, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to say that I know a lot about Baylor or a lot about what that football team's about. I know they just lost to a bad TCU team. I talked about that earlier. But I feel like Oklahoma in the past has traditionally had some some struggles heading to Waco, um, and so I think I think that could be a very very interesting one. Oklahoma's got a, a pretty tough little stretch. I think they have Iowa State next week at home, and then they finish Bedlam with Oklahoma State. So it's gonna be a little bit interesting. But I I I think I'm gonna lean towards Baylor winning that one. Yeah, I can see it. Um, if we can get one of those two upsets between Baylor or Penn State, I would be pretty happy. Mississippi State at Auburn, just something to root for. We need Auburn to keep winning. That way there's no situation where – because if Auburn – Auburn has two SEC losses right now. So if they beat um, Alabama in the Iron Bowl, Alabama would be blocked from the SEC championship game. So uh, it's, it's hard to do, but root for Bo Nix as much as you can. And uh, Wisconsin, we need them to keep winning too just to keep bumping up the polls. They're at 18 right now. If they win mm. their final few games, I think they might go into the big – Big Ten Championship as a top 12 team, which would be good for our resume. Absolutely. Absolutely it would. Who who does Cincinnati play this week? Uh, they play South Florida on Friday night, so they'll probably win by three. <laughs> what happened to them? Like, I'm serious. I mean, they they crushed UCF, who, I, you know, I don't know if UCF's the best, second-best team in the AAC anymore. Um but they like annihilated UCF, and 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 after that, you know, they played Navy, Tulane, Tulsa. All those games were we didn't look great against Tulsa either. But still, what do you? What's gotten into the Bearcats? The pressure? Yeah, I don't know. Tulsa too. I think Tulsa ran for two hundred yards. I think what's happening to them is similar to what happened to Ohio State in two thousand fifteen. I think that. Ever, there was so many so much expectation of Ohio State coming into the season, and it was a very talented team. But I think, in retrospect, the 2014 team was probably better than we realized. You know, everyone was like, "Oh, they're so young! Like they're going to be better when they come back." And I think Cincinnati had the same pressure. And when you're just not as talented, and then you have the additional pressure, it's just hard to deal with it. And every every week is like a pressure cooker for them. You know, they feel like they have to be perfect. They can't just go out and play their game. They have to, you know, ex- yeah. every, everything. And it's, it's, it's really difficult. And same thing, like Georgia is going to come back next year and be like the undisputed number one team. And they're going to, you know, be knocked down a peg. We're seeing the same thing with Alabama. Alabama's offensive line has been terrible and it was supposed to be so good. They were supposed to have three first round picks coming into the year. So you just don't, you just don't know. It takes a really special you- to deal with expectations like that. Did you know they rushed for eight yards on Saturday night? 
I did Eight. only because I I was I watched I was watching that game pretty. That was one of those games I had on the second TV, and I was like, eh, they, you know, they're gonna probably pull away. They're gonna, and then and then before you know, it, LSU was driving with a chance to win, but uh, they and were you slowly pulled. move it to TV one. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, you know, Oregon. I was hoping, man, if LSU beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa as a twenty-eight point dog, uh, I would just go out and uh, get an LSU jersey. <laughs> <laughs> an Edo jersey, something like that. The uh, other one, Nate, I want to talk about is Georgia at Tennessee. This one's interesting, I think, only because uh, Georgia's defense is number one in the country. I'm not disputing that. It's incredible that the entire year they haven't allowed more than 13 points. But Tennessee's the best offense they will have played this season, and there's no doubt about that. Tennessee is better than Florida. Tennessee is better than Auburn's. Uh, Tennessee, I think they like what they put up like 60 against Kentucky last week. So I think it. If Georgia's going wow. to struggle in the regular season, I think it's going to be at Tennessee. I don't. I'm not necessarily calling it upset here, but I wouldn't be shocked if Tennessee, you know, breaks the twenty or thirty point threshold against Georgia. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. I, I that that's the CBS three thirty game, I suppose. Um, I was just wanting to look at the the score here of that Kentucky Tennessee game. I missed that. Yeah, 45-42, pretty impressive. Uh, Hendon Hooker, 316 yards passing, four touchdowns. Okay, yeah, may, who knows? Maybe maybe that is. I, I don't think Georgia wins that football game, but could I see it being sneaky at the half, you know, 10-7 Tennessee? Yeah, I, I feel like I could I could certainly see that. What's amazing about that Tennessee Kentucky game? These are this is the total time of the Tennessee drives because they play that Josh Heupel up tempo crap. Mm. Eleven seconds is the first drive they scored on the first play. Twenty six seconds is the second drive. A minute fifteen the third. One oh three the fourth. Two forty three, then sixteen seconds. So the first six sixteen six seconds. Wow. Yeah, coming out of the half, then forty five seconds resulted in a touchdown. One oh six resulted in a fumble. 44 seconds resulted in a touchdown. They were just getting these like crazy fast touchdowns. Hendon Hooker, 316 yards, four touchdowns. They ran the ball well, 27 for 145. So Tennessee's like, I think Tennessee's sort of the Purdue of the SEC. I think that they could really beat anyone on any given day. And you, you kind of always got to put your, put your paws up and play defensive uh, football against them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I do have one question, Mike. Why is South Carolina not ranked? They're five and four, and they're in the SEC. That's got to be a mistake. They should be a top top fifteen team. <laughs> I think so. I mean, th- listen to these quality losses. They beat South, or they lost to no, sorry, they lost to Texas A and M by thirty. Um, pretty impressive. They lost to Georgia by twenty seven. And then they have impressive wins over East Carolina, Eastern Illinois, uh, Troy, and Vanderbilt. So I, I'd probably try and get them in the top ten soon. One point squeaker over Vanderbilt. <laughs> That's right. Where they had to call on a guy who was supposed to be a graduate assistant quarterbacks coach this year to to strap on the pads and win the game. That's wild. I, but, I, hey, honestly, hey, I haven't watched any South Carolina football this year, nor nor do I. They, well, they beat a four and five Florida team, so that's all you need. <laughs> How impressive is that? 
Uh, I, I can't get over this. Uh, I, we got off the beaten track with uh, talking about the playoff odds. So they, as a, I just want to circle back to that really quickly, and then we can kind of talk about give our Purdue predictions and then it, end the uh, podcast. But after Alabama at 70%, that's what knocked us off the beaten path because that is just like such an overestimation. They have Ohio State and Oklahoma 58%, Cincinnati 54%. And then mm. you dip quite a bit. Michigan, 22. Notre Dame, 19. Oklahoma State, 15. And I'll see how that happens. They have Oregon at 4%. So I, I guess they're just thinking that Oregon's Wow, 4%? Yeah, I guess they're thinking Oregon's either going to get jumped or they're going to lose some games. I mean, they, they certainly had some close calls. Uh, their, last, their last four games, three of them have been decided by uh, 10 points or less. And the one that was decided by more than that was, was Colorado. So – can't can't take much into that. So it's not like they've been playing well since that Stanford loss. But and they, you know why they play at Utah, and I think that is going to be a game where they're probably going to be an underdog. And even if they win that game, they're probably going to have to rematch Utah in the Pac-12 championship. So right. I don't think Oregon's going to beat Utah twice. Right, right. Which I mean, if you can't beat Utah twice, do you really deserve to be in the college football playoff? Well, every year this happens to the Pac-12 teams. They eat each other, and then they finish, the champion ends up with three losses, and they, they don't even come close to the playoff. That is the that is the trend of that conference, no doubt. So, Nate, what's your what's your prediction of the Ohio State Purdue game? Uh, for reference, let me check this. Let me just check the spread. Um, it is Ohio State minus twenty. I was surprised to see it was that high. And the wow, sixty two. Wow. Um, do I think the Buckeyes are going to cover? I'm going to say that they don't cover. Um, could this be some reverse psychology? Maybe. Uh, but I'm going to say that the Buckeyes do not cover. I think that they look better than they did this past week. I'm going to pick them to win. Um, let's say 38 to 20. 38 to 20, I think we get the ground game established a little bit more, and maybe we get a, we see a little bit more Mayan Williams, you know, spell Travion Henderson that way. Yeah, I think this one's going to be lower scoring than people expect, which I think might be frustrating because people are going to say, oh, you know, the offense still needs to be fixed. Purdue's defense, you know, isn't that great, and you didn't play that well. But, uh, you know, it's a it's a 45, it's 45 degrees. There's going to be some wind. I think, again, we're just going to be happy to win at this point. And, and we're not looking for style points. We're just trying to win. I think we're going to get out of there with the 34-24 kind of game. Ooh, yeah. ooh. It's going to be a little, little closer, a little closer for comfort. But, uh, you know, I would, I, man, I would love to see like one of those games where we just come out and we win like 54 to seven and just kind of silence the haters. That would certainly be nice. But at the same token, you know, when your team is not playing their best football, especially with college kids, psychologically, it sort of helps them get better. You know, we, we don't want them resting yeah. on laurels too much. So um, as long I'm, I'm okay with them playing B plus football right now, as long as they're, they're playing a football by the time the playoff comes around. Hey, and I'd, I'd just like to say if Ohio State is going to make the college football playoff, we've said this many times, they're going to have to win their next four football games. And those four football games are all going to be against top 20 teams. I think if they could get one of those weeks where they're up big at the half and they could get their backups to play even a quarter, I, I think in terms of rest for the starters, that could go a really long way. 
And Nate, I'll say this. If Ohio State does lose to Purdue, I will never enter the state again, and I will light my degree on fire. <laughs>